I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Emily Friedlander, and you're listening to episode 14 of the Thump Podcast. Every week, we bring together a panel of Thump editors to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife. Today, we'll be doing a special episode about two pretty unconventional music events we visited this past week, Movement in Detroit and the Indy 500, an automobile race held annually at Indianapolis Motor Speedway in Speedway, Indiana, that started hosting an EDM show in a place called the Snake Pit. Do you all want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Colin Joyce, the managing editor and resident car racing enthusiast. Hi, I'm Michelle Luke, the features editor. I'm Ezra Marcus, the associate editor. And I'm Emily Friedlander, the editor-in-chief. So let's talk about movement. Movement of all the festivals that we go to involves some of the craziest hours, probably the most ample amount of partying, uh, highest number of electronic events. What was the weirdest thing that you experienced at Movement this year, Michelle? The weirdest thing was probably the most inspiring thing at the same time. It was around... 10 a.m. on Monday morning at this party called No Way Back, and I was in this rave cave that they'd made basically out of all kinds of fabrics, and I just remember looking around and seeing, like, what someone described as the Noah's Ark of ravers around me, just ravers (laughs) of every single kind from all over the country. Shout out Vivian Host for that reference, by the way. And, you know, everyone was just a freak and completely living and doing their own thing and freaking out to the music and no one was creeping. The vibe was just completely comfortable, I think. And that was the moment where, you know, I'd been feeling, to be honest, like a little bit jaded and cynical about rave culture recently. And just looking around and seeing those people, all these weirdos living their lives and fully, fully, fully being there for the music, I was like, this is what it's about. Ezra, what about you? What was the craziest experience that you had? So I was at that same party in in the last year that I went to Movement. I was there with my friend Tom, both this year and last year. He was taking photos. And last year, around 10 a.m., we went for a walk, and we saw all this, like, weird stuff. Like, one example was we were walking along this, these train tracks, and we saw this, like, dog collar and some bones in the middle of the train track. So this year, we were like, all right, like right, let's go for a walk again around the same time, see what we can see. 
and it's it's in this like really desolate neighborhood full of abandoned buildings and really really empty and we were walking around along the train tracks and the first thing that we saw was this blue backpack and next to it was a rusty hacksaw and then like a radio that had the batteries ripped out and a nail file jammed into the back of the radio so we were like okay well this seems like the start of a riddle but we kept walking and about another 50 meters later there was this huge field of rubble and the rubble had been divided into black and white stones i guess it was probably asphalt and concrete but it looked really weird and artificial like black over here and this like sharp line down the middle and white over here and so we're like walking around this rubble and i see something and i look closer and there's this like a huge blood stain on one of the rocks this like viscous red definitely human blood like it really looked like somebody had been just shot in the head and yeah i mean i we just got out of there pretty quickly i mean i'm sure you know it just was like pretty spooky Wait, Ezra, you should also tell the story of your post-club toilet burning man extravaganza. Oh, yeah. So so I went to Club Toilet, which is this um, this big gay party thrown by Wrecked and Honcho and Macho City and Spotlight, a variety of gay parties around the country. And, and as we were leaving, it was like 8 a.m. and we were leaving and this guy we had been talking, my friend Tom and I had been talking to was like, hey, come with me. I'm going to this like crazy after party. And we were like, okay, whatever. Why not? So we get in his Uber and we just like drive maybe like 20 minutes to God knows where. And the Uber pulls up at this field. There wasn't any kind of like entry or security or anything like that. It was just a field with a really big sound system in it. Maybe like 75 people there, super burner vibe. Like there was like a dude walking around with like a top hat and like a dog. There was like a (laughs) fire with this like... 15-year-old kid in a McDonald's restaurant, like, uniform was throwing pallets on the fire, and there were these, like, 15, like, white dudes with dreadlocks smoking nitrous balloons next to the fire, and there was, like, all this sort of uh, very Burning Man style, like, there was, like, an art car, what have you, like, driving around that was just, like, this shell of a car with all this stuff built on top of it, just, like, complete Mad Max. There was this, like, a uh, huge... I don't even know what you would call it, like a pillar coming out of this this building that it had a kind of like a globe, maybe like 15 feet high attached to it way up in the air. And there was flames coming off of it. it. It literally looked like something that would be like at the front of some kind of post-apocalyptic caravan, you know, very like Zion and the Matrix vibe. And that went on for a few hours. And I mean, it, it ended around like noon with this like old guy, at least in his 50s, wearing a full suit, playing soul music 45s, as while well, like some young girl ran around with uh, pancakes they were making there. I, th- I think that both of your stories highlight what was my experience of movement last year, which is that a, like a key feature of this festival is sleep deprivation. Yeah. Um, which kind of like heightens the experience of everything. Like the, the festival itself goes from like noon to midnight, something like that. I don't know if those are the exact hours, but then these after parties that they're describing um, go all night. So uh, right, the way I was go even longer, like 16 hours. Right. The way I described it to like friends after I went last year was that like, if I wanted to, I could have seen techno for like 96 hours straight. So like, what was your guys schedule? I like got there around noon and I had been up all pretty much the entire night previously already. And I got there and I like 
went out to the festival around like seven or eight, chilled there for a few hours, and then like at the festival, you're kind of mostly, at least I was mostly just like sitting in the backstage area. Like they have these like Red Bull does this bar where they're just like selling these really cheap Red Bull drinks that are mostly just Red Bull. So I got really hopped up on Red Bull, <laughs> and then we like headed out. And you know, and like the after parties are where people really devote most of their time and energy. I think like a lot of people come there explicitly just for the after parties because they're just so. The, they're just so full on and like the production value and like the caliber of the talent and the, how cool the venues are. So I mean, our the after party schedule pretty much started at like one thirty, and both nights I was out till like noon. I didn't really sleep honestly. I couldn't really sleep. I was just sort of like chilling in the hotel room because our hotel room was directly overlooking movement itself. So like one day I got back at like ten thirty and like try to go to sleep and they, they're warming up they're sound checking the festival itself so I was just like couldn't really sleep it wasn't really on the menu what about you Michelle I would usually go to the festival until it closed or until like 10 or 11 and then head back to my hotel and sleep for like a few hours and go back out around 1 or 2 a.m. I think I sort of figured out like the best sort of <laughs> fake circadian rhythm to follow <laughs> But, yeah, I probably got a total of seven hours sleep the entire weekend. On Sunday night into Monday night, I didn't sleep at all, which was pretty rough because I had to interview Kevin Saunderson at the very end of that. And, yeah, interviewing someone on very little sleep is never fun. Yeah, I had to interview a mayoral candidate um, wh- while I was really sleep-deprived. And, I don't know, something about it, I just, like, completely snapped. I was, like... Going, I was in the cab over there. I was like, oh, oh, I don't know about this. And then it just like snapped into it the second I got into her campaign office and it was fine. But The lives of dance music journalists. <laughs> what makes movement a little bit different from some of the other huge festivals that we talk about, like EDC or Ultra? So few of those festivals have any kind of like regionality or actual connection to the place where they are, right? I mean, there's not like EDC Las Vegas is featuring Las Vegas artists. Whereas Movement emerged from, I mean, it was started by Detroit techno DJs working with the city of Detroit. And I mean, it's it's been privatized since it's now a for-profit thing, but it's still like heavily features Detroit artists. I mean, Kevin Saunderson has some kind of like headlining role every year. Well, Belleville 3 actually played this year as a headliner, and there was a stage that was dedicated to Detroit artists called Made in Detroit. My one qualm, though, is that I wish that stage had been bigger. Um, You know, I got to see, like, Norm Talley and DJ Minx, like, really awesome local DJs, but they um, were off on a sort of, like, side stage that was pretty small. I mean, it was fun and intimate, but, you know, I think it would have been cool to give these people a really big platform, a platform that they honestly deserve. How was the Belleville 3 moment? I, I felt last year there was like a kind of buzz in the air of seeing Kraftwerk in Detroit because there's so much of a connection between them and the music of Detroit. And I imagine even more so for Belleville 3. I, I think it was definitely very anticipated, but the common consensus between everyone that I spoke to was that it was a bit disappointing. You can tell that they just don't have the sort of chemistry that you want them to have. And to me, it just seemed like they were all taking turns to play, not really giving each other space to like play out full tracks um, or even like, you know, the usual B2B is a very collaborative process, but it seemed like they were all just like waiting impatiently for someone to be done so that the next person could take over. That was my impression. 
one thing that kind of annoyed me was that Dead Mouse uh, got to close out the second day of the festival with his techno alias, which he, I think, just started pretty recently. And it was honestly so bad. You know, it would have been really, really cool to give that spot again to like a Detroit artist. And I had several conversations about this with people who felt the same way. Like, why do we need to give Dead Mouse's new techno alias the spotlight when there are so many people who've been doing this for decades who deserve that spotlight? It's hard for me to imagine someone who's even anticipating a Dead Mouse techno set. Like, like is a Dead Mouse fan anticipating that? What's interesting about movement is that you see the full range, like I said before, the Noah's Ark spectrum of techno fans. So you have the EDC, you have the ultra techno people, and sure, they might be into Dead Mouse, but they're also, you know, into other sorts of techno. And and then you have the like hardcore underground heads and, you know, just ravers from from all over the place and every every place in the sort of like underground and mainstream. One of my favorite things last year that I saw was um, Miha played on the Ausla stage, which like everybody else kind of just used as a place to play their music as like a home for like the weird EDM thing that they do at Movement, which is an outlier there. But Miha um, played a set that was like mostly like acid house and techno stuff. She was like bending to the history of the place and I, were there was there anything that you guys saw at the festival itself that was like that like someone doing something out of the ordinary? Well, I know that like the Tech Life crew played as well as some rappers. Ezra, did you manage to see any of those? Yeah, people? I saw Earl Sweatshirt, which is sick. I love Earl Sweatshirt. I always wanted to see him. He's really charismatic. I mean, there was nothing about the set that was like in any way to attuned to Detroit in particular, but but it did feel like a bit of a departure to have Earl Sweatshirt play. They, they always have a couple of rappers. They did mm-hmm. last year as well. One of the things that makes movement so different from other festivals is the fact that the after parties are such a big part of the attraction. Last year, we were doing our year-end best of series, and we actually called the movement after parties best festival of the year. How would you say that the after parties measured up against last year? When I went into it, I, like, there was like these these two big parties from last year. People often talk about it as like the ones to go to, which were Club Toilet and No Way Back. And I went to both of those again this year. And at those parties, initially, I definitely had the sense of like, oh, like something's changed here. Like there's a lot more people here and a lot. I mean, I hesitate to like say this in a derogatory way, but just like a lot more normies. And I think what happened with No Way Back in particular, because last year I get there at like, you know, 3 a.m. There's no line or anything. And you get inside, it's like all freaks. This time it was like the festival itself, I think, listed it as on the after party page. And it was like slammed. Like I waited in line for at least an hour to get in. And it was like that for up until I think like 5 a.m. I waited in line that long to get into No Way Back last really? year, but I think I went I went like earlier, but yeah. When I first got there, it seemed like it was a little bit more of like the normal festival crowd had found out about these parties. But by the time I was, it was like 9 a.m., it didn't feel like that. It was, you know, still just as freaky as last year. And I think with Club Toilet as well, like a similar kind of thing happened and they also had made the space a lot bigger so it was like double the size and it, last year it felt like a very family affair like where, where at the end everyone kind of knew each other but this year it was like a lot more crowded but it was still really fun and like there's still no, nothing else like it in the US I don't think 
Right. I would say that for sure. I agree. Everything seemed bigger and more plentiful this year. Um, I made a party guide for all the after parties and I probably had about 40 parties listed for the weekend. And that was just a curated list. Like there were more parties than that even happening, which is insane. Um, So I definitely feel like there were more things going on this year. And the parties themselves also seemed bigger in terms of both people and spaces. But what's cool is that, you know, This is a festival that's been around for more than two decades. Um, And a lot of the promoters who have been doing parties here have been doing them for several years. So they've built up a following. They've built up a brand. I mean, it's not just Toilet and Noe Back. There's OK Cool. There's Deep Detroit. There's all these parties that have a really distinctive vibe and crowd and sound. And you know what to expect when you go. I think that, you know, for example, Old Miami is a party that Seth Troxter does every year since like 2006 or something. And that is where a lot of the sort of uh, RA, like black t-shirt tech house people like to go. And that's and, and if you go to that party, you know what to expect. Um, and I think it's the same thing for all of the other parties. I guess my question is, as this festival continues to get bigger and bigger, and it definitely feels like it's on an upward trajectory, what's going to happen to the identities of these parties? Are they going to become diluted? Um, can you like retain a certain vibe when you know you're getting blown up all the time and all these like random people are coming? Well, I think one thing that I, I just took away from this here was like Detroit is so crazy. It's so quirky. And there's so much stuff going on. And there's so many spaces that like you might think you've seen it all. And, you know, I, I, I left Club Toll at 8 a.m. being like, OK, I saw that last year. I seen it this year, you know, took a picture, bought a postcard. But then I like end up at this like freaky ass, like crust raver. Everyone there was from Detroit, like super legit, you know, outdoor free rave at a recycling center and I was just like wow I don't even know the first thing about this city it's like there's just always going to be more shit to explore if you really put the effort in and also I think that there were like as you were saying it's getting bigger I mean it's it's trajectory of getting bigger while WMC which is a more EDM festival driven I think it's smaller obviously is that there's a bigger and bigger audience for like hardcore house and techno you know of like a what you might expect to see in Berlin there's a bigger and bigger audience for that in America and I think that we saw festivals I mean we saw after parties like grow to accommodate that like last year Disc Woman was a 9 to 2 p.m. thing it was fun but it was kind of smaller scale this year I went it was like a real banger it was at like a huge two floor spot it went to like 5 a.m had like a really big lineup with shanti celeste and mike servito and it was like well this is this you know for if they keep going at the scale is going to be one of the new like after parties you need to go to even um trip metal which is not even related to movement but happens at the same time and is more focused on like noise experimental music um it's like helmed by wolf eyes it definitely felt bigger as well that actually went down from three days to two days though Mm. which i think allowed them to like really beef up the the two lineups that they had. Right, right, right. But yeah, there are definitely more people there and more things to see when you were there. So who played Trip Metal this year? Okay, well, my highlight was Flucked, which is a performance art duo from Brooklyn here. And they did this, like, super grotesque, demonic performance that really made me think about sort of, like, you know, our complicity in pop culture and the objectification of female bodies and a lot of the themes that they continue to explore in their work. Um, It was also really cool to see um, Alicia Crampton, who did like a really long monologue in the beginning of her performance. Is that normal for her, Colin? Does she do that a lot? Yeah, she does it off and on. I, I, I've seen her so many times and uh, she always has some sort of spoken word component, but sometimes it happens like integrated within the set and sometimes it's at the beginning. Right. But yeah, it's really heavy. Yeah, that was really cool. Did she do the guitar thing? That's my favorite development in her set. 
is that that she started using like the like '80s keyboard guitar thing that she did at Moogfest la- uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't know. I don't think I remember that, but I was sitting way in the back. It's super endearing. <laughs> cool. And then via app from Brooklyn, Bodyhead, Pharmacon, Wolf Eyes, Container, and DJ Earl. <laughs> it's definitely like of all of the m- movement. I guess not affiliated. They're not affiliated with movement, and I, they would definitely tell you that if I said that. <laughs> um, all the stuff that happens around movement, they're definitely booking the like weirdest <laughs> acts to play it, right? Like I don't. I feel like there's not. Yeah. Not other parties that fill that. that Electronic hole. music that isn't dance music. Right. Right. Not, nothing on that scale for sure. Although Kim Gordon's performance honestly was a bit disappointing as well. All I saw, and maybe I missed stuff, was her writhing on the floor playing in harmonica for one song. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's the usual body headset, but it, it definitely seems in character, too. <laughs> it's improv, I guess. <laughs> but that's what I love about the whole weekend, though, is that you can have the Belleville 3 playing alongside Richie Houghton at you know a huge concert theater, and then you can also have like these really sick queer lesbian DJs playing at Industry Brunch, and then you can have trip metal, all of these like noise heads, um, you know, in like a backyard. You have it really does have like the full spectrum of everything that you could find in in rave culture. How often do you think these kinds of events happen when it's not Movement Weekend? Like, is it just a bunch of people sort of flooding the city? one weekend a year or is it is this like higher attendance that you noticed reflective of something happening in Detroit it's a really good question honestly and it's something that I asked a lot of people and I mean nobody really gave me any kind of like definitive answer but there are for sure parties that happen there a lot I know that the place where I went to that like crazy crusty after party they said they have shit there all the time it's literally just like a field next to the recycling center but I know that also there's like Clubs like Grenadier Club, where Disc Woman um, had its party. If you look on Resident Advisor, they have a, recently had a lot of listings that are going super late in the morning there. I don't know how well attended they are, but it seems like there's also Macho City, which is the Detroit party that throws Club Toilet. And they told me that they are like kind of the one major good queer party holding it down. I mean, they would say that, but I think that they are the equivalent to Detroit, what something like Honcho is to Pittsburgh or what have you. Like, there's like a, there is for sure a scene there. I don't and know what the numbers are. Club there throws are like, a lot of shows where, yeah. where trip metal happens. That There's always, I, I, I see a lot of their events that are like, I don't know, like noise bands just coming through on a random Wednesday. It yeah, seems totally. like they do a lot of that. And um, like Jandek would play Right, there. right. I can't remember the name of it, but there's a recurring party that happens there, like in, in at L Club now. That's like overall weird electronic music. Uh, it's run by two of the dudes from Destruction Unit, and they like had Jalen like the week before movement. So there's like room, I think, for both the more traditionalist stuff and weird stuff in Detroit right now. It seems like I think that it's probably a very exciting time to be there. One of the conversations that often comes up when talking about movement um, is just sort of how well the city has been able to capitalize on its rich cultural musical legacy and become sort of a destination year round. Do you guys get the sense like from being there that the city is changing at all in that way or that it's kind of supporting its arts? 
Well, Joel, our publisher, had a great conversation with Mad Mike from Underground Resistance, who told him that either earlier this year or last year, a bunch of Detroit City Council went over to Berlin um, to sort of like learn from that city how to make your city into a destination. And that effort was spearheaded by Dimitri Hedgeman, who's the founder of Trezor, who's super, super committed to building up Detroit. Um, and I think he's even purchased some property in Detroit that he's developing and wants to make into some kind of industrial, musical, cultural community center. So I think that things are definitely in the works and have been in the works for a while. Um, And there is like a scene that's bubbling up, but it hasn't really reached the point where I'm hearing people say, I'm going to go to Detroit for a weekend of partying. You know, I don't think that that's quite it's quite at that level yet. Ezra, you spoke with someone who's actually running for mayor of Detroit about sort of capitalizing on the city's cultural heritage. What did she have to say? Right. Well, yeah, I spoke to Ingrid LaFleur. She had a lot to say about it. I mean, on the one hand, she and many other people that we spoke to there um, stressed that gentrification is a really serious and fast-moving issue across the city. At the same time, she also felt that the city ought to do a lot more to capitalize on its history. I mean, obviously, a city like Berlin has spent three decades basically, like, living off of techno, whereas in Detroit, electronic music, as and what she really was fo- was focusing on, since she's, like, she's an art teacher herself, was, was the visual arts have been kind of left behind to a certain extent. I mean, you've got movement, but other than that, I mean, she was telling me that Due to budget cuts, the city eliminated its um, cultural affairs department in the last administration. So she is, one of her campaign promises is to bring that back. And she really feels like the arts have been kind of totally stripped away from Detroit's kind of like, due to Detroit's budget crisis, that, that there's just not enough funding for any of that. And the city doesn't do enough to like capitalize on its own rich legacy to raise much-needed funds that it could use to solve pressing issues. I bet music could actually be a pretty big industry for the city. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it really could. And I think that the city, while it is happy to, like, you know, help out with movement, hasn't done as much as a lot of people would like in terms of treating its techno musicians and the music as like something that could be a huge moneymaker and a huge source of tourism. Right. Imagine if it did the same thing that like Cleveland did with rock and roll. Yeah. But I think an important distinction to make though is that like compared to Berlin, Detroit as a city does not have the money to support like clubs the way that um, Berlin, you know, gave like a cultural grant to Berkheim in order to support it. Um, and that's just the difference between, I guess, like American cities and European cities. European cities tend to have like tradition of, you know, state-sponsored cultural institutions. Well, but it, but what she was saying was that if Detroit did more to encourage nightlife and encourage, you know, people to come to the city to see techno music, which it does to a certain extent by helping movement happen, but if, if it did more, that could itself provide tax dollars to the city. So, Colin, can you tell us what the Indy 500 is? I don't know if all dance music fans 
know what that is. Totally. Yeah, it's a weird thing because in terms of people actually attending like on site, it is the biggest sporting event in the world that happens annually. Every year on Memorial Day weekend, 250,000 to 400,000 people come to Indianapolis, Indiana to watch people uh, turn left for 500 miles. But as you might expect, in the periphery of any large sporting event is a lot of partying. Like, uh, imagine what happens at the Super Bowl. Like, there's stuff that happens that whole week. There's stuff that happens the whole month for the Indy 500 as well. The most substantial of those being the Snake Pit, which is a long-running tradition of partying at the track. It started in the 1920s, actually. Um, I'm not sure when it acquired the name, but the tradition itself started in the 1920s when people would um, camp out the night before the race in uh, turn one of the track. So maybe I should backtrack a bit here. The track is very long. It's two and a half miles long, which allows for hundreds of acres in the infield. There's like a full golf course and, and another racetrack inside the racetrack. So that leaves a lot of space for people to like drive in and park their cars and uh, like thousands of people camping the night before. And so they would either wake up at six in the morning before the race and start drinking or drink all night. Um, and that's a tradition that's held since then. The first like five or six decades of that happening, it was a pretty informal thing. There have been some troubled relationships there. There's occasionally been violence that breaks out among the intoxicated people. And in 1980, there was a guy that drove a Jeep through the snake pit and flipped it over and died. And the track decided that they couldn't have that anymore. So they took, they increased the police presence and moved it to another part of the track for reasons that aren't really clear, but apparently like quelled the total unruliness of the spectacle. And then in the 90s, it was kind of calm, but they decided in 2012, in peak EDM years, that that was the way that they were going to engage the youth with the Indy 500 again. And they started booking EDM DJs to play in a new formalized snake pit in turn three of the track. The first year, uh, Benny Benassi and uh, Cruella played. So are the people who are drunk at 10.30 a.m., did they, have they been partying all night? Yeah, so now you can't, I don't think that you can camp out within the track um, anymore the night before, but you can camp out in the blocks immediately surrounding it. So that's like what most of the people that buy tickets to go to the infield do. So this year, the lineup was Zed, Marshmallow, R.L. Grime, and uh, Vice's good friend, Action Bronson. The MC was former professional wrestler Ric Flair. And from the moment that I got there uh, at like nine o'clock in the morning, there were people that were very clearly like not well and getting carted out by medical. Like during R.L. Grime's set, I saw a guy like Fireman carry his friend out of the like masses of people and the friend looked like he was about to puke all over everybody <laughs> at 1030 in the morning. Like there is there is like no place to experience something like that. Are there people driving in from all over the country for it? All over the world. Yeah, people come from Italy and Spain a lot. And yeah, the snake pit is pretty homogenous, I would say. It's a lot of white people from the Midwest that are going there that don't care about the race itself and are spending all day at this, what's essentially become an EDM festival in the middle of the biggest sporting event in the world. It's super strange. It draws a super strange mix of people. So Mike Pence, uh, former governor of Indiana and current vice president, was at the Indy 500 this year. It was apparently the 30th time that he had gone to the Indy 500. That's how ingrained it is in local culture. Like, you'll hear all sorts of people that have, that have done stuff like that. My dad's been 20 years in a row. As, as a passing motorcade of Chevy Suburbans passed 
us uh, leaving the track, uh, I saw a woman also yell, fuck you, Mike Pence, (laughs) at at the passing motorcade. Whether or not he was actually in there remains to be seen, but I think that it just shows that, like, even in the heartland you know it's pretty split like and an edm festival is like a flashpoint for that is like totally absurd and i'm very excited to like dig into it in writing there's just something so american about having a beer in your hand at 10 30 in the morning as rl grime drops like amigos acapella and like pillars of fire coming off behind a Coors Light sign on the stage, you know? Like, there's, <laughs> there's like, no, no more quintessentially America in 2017 experience than that. The highlight was, after the whole thing was over, walking across the golf course back to uh, my car, because I haven't had that experience since I was a teenager, just strolling along a fairway. On that note, you've been listening to The Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. I wanted to shout out Tim Barnes, who engineers and edits The Thump Podcast. You can find him on Twitter at TimBarnes451. We'd also like to shout out Lorna Dune, who made the music for this podcast and whose music can be heard at lornadune.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website at thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thumpthump or facebook.com slash thumpthump. Guys, do you want to let people know where they can follow you? Yes, um, I'm on Twitter at outasightouta, or uh, you can follow me to the greatest spectacle in racing. I'm at Michelle L-H-O-O-Q on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm Ezra underscore Mark on Twitter. I'm Ad Hoc Emily on Twitter. If you like what you've heard, please rate and subscribe on iTunes. Ratings help, but word of mouth is the only way we get this out there. Have a good one. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.